everybody, this is Danny Heineman with RUF at the University of Wisconsin, and I want to welcome you to uh, the third episode of our podcast, A Story to Tell, and I'm here with Kelsey Sullivan, who's one of my interns. Hey guys, welcome back. The Story to Tell is a podcast that we are putting together since we can't be with people in person, and it's going to be a series of conversations between Kelsey and I talking about contemporary issues and ideas and trying to put them in their historical and, you know, biblical and theological context together. Danny, what are we talking about today? We're talking about universities. So the university, you know, is like kind of a major thing for us. We're a campus ministry here. So we work at the university. Our our mission is to a university. And so, and then our students, obviously, are participants in this institution. Uh, I'm a graduate, you're a graduate of universities. So we thought it would be good to talk about a little bit about, about like where universities came from, how they developed, uh, how they're different now from where they've been. Yeah, and I think that this is super important to look at through the lens of church history, um, because contrary to the modern trend of trying to like, you know, pitting faith and scholarship against each other, mm-hmm. I think that as Danny and I sort of examine these roots of the university, we're going to start to uncover this spiritual legacy um, that actually supports the idea that God and academia are not mutually exclusive things, nor have they ever been. Um, yeah. Despite, despite so, sort of like what exists today. Totally. The stories are like super intertwined. And in a lot of ways, the ideas or the convictions about the world and our place in it were the things, the, the kind of Christian convictions about those um, questions were the things that, the very things that gave rise to the university uh, as we experience it today. So I'm a graduate of uh, a college, I guess, not a university, but we can talk about the distinctions of those if we have time. But Kelsey, you're a graduate of the University of Wisconsin here, your first generation graduate. Yep, and, I am. Uh, and now you're working, not officially necessarily as a part of the university, but you're deeply immersed in the university context. So I thought it could be interesting for you to talk a little bit about your own experience of the university, what it means to you, what it has meant to you, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so being a first-generation college student, I definitely value education. I think that it's something that everyone should have access to, especially higher education, because I think in my experience in higher education, it sort of like brought me out of the cave mm. um, you know, in a lot of ways and just opened my eyes to new ways of viewing the world, new ways of viewing people. And it was actually in college that I came to faith, mm. which is mm-hmm. also an interesting thing. But I think that college itself is, has become a rite of passage in our culture, in the United States. And it's a time for people to explore all different sorts of topics and ideas and yeah, kind of come to this understanding of how they, or what their beliefs are about the world yeah, it's not a time and, to be like afraid of asking hard questions. Danny, you also went to college. Mm-hmm. What was your experience? Um, I mean, it was really good. I went to uh, I went to a small private uh, Christian liberal arts college, which is, I mean, it's about as different as you can get from like the University of Wisconsin. There were twenty five hundred mm-hmm. students at my school. You had to go to chapel three times a week. I went to Wheaton College, and then. UW has 45,000 students. So very, very different places. But in terms of the value of college, and I think the institution itself, I think is just a really critical, a really critical one to the way our society is set up right now. I, don't, I also, you know, I have my own personal criticisms of the way it's set up, but I still think it's really important. So let's sort of talk about some of 
the history and how we've found the structure of the university today. Like we're yeah. kind of tracing all the way back to the formation, mm-hmm. which I'm pretty sure took place during the middle, medieval ages. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of the research you did? Yeah, for sure. And the formation of the university. Yeah. I mean, you can go... As it, as it is with anything, you can like always go back further in history. But I think what you can, I think what it's safe to do is you can trace it back to around the time when the Roman Empire fell. And so the Roman Empire lasted for, if I recall correctly, it lasted for about a thousand years. And it began to kind of fall apart in around 500, um, 450, 400, between 400 and 500 is when the Roman Empire kind of fell apart. And the Roman Empire was the biggest empire that, that, that Europe had ever seen, at least. I mean, it, and it was more than Europe. It was Europe, Asia, and Africa. That's it went, you know, all it went into all those different places. And when it collapsed, the order or the stability, the institutional stability that it provided also collapsed. And what was still standing at the end of that, in large part, really the biggest institution that was present in all of those places was the church. And so people started to look to the church for a lot more than just like worship or you know spiritual counseling the the stability of the institution of the church began to um, draw people to it for all kinds of things like you know get, making judgments on law, like breaking of the law making decisions over financial disputes like and this was happening even before the empire totally fell apart but like Augustine Bishop of Hippo spent a lot of his day adjudicating court cases, which is not what you think of today when you think of bishops. Um, right. So then the church the church was functioning as a governmental structure. Yeah. In a lot of ways it was. Not necessarily explicitly, but functionally. It took on a lot of mm-hmm. those responsibilities kind of out of necessity. And one of the things that it took on was the task of educating. So before the empire fell, there was this movement to begin to construct monasteries, which were places where monks went to live, and there were schools that developed there. One of the things that the monks did was copy texts, ancient texts, biblical texts, and then other theological texts. And to do that well, they a lot of the monks began to be trained in you know the ancient languages, so Latin primarily, but some of them also in Greek and Hebrew. And that environment kind of gave rise to this, it was like a culture of learning. And so you had things like monastery schools. Now, if you skip ahead, like... 500 years, which I'm loath to do, but we must. So the podcast isn't like a four hour. So if we skip ahead 500 years, what time period does that put us in? That puts us around like 1000 AD, 1000 to 1100, somewhere around there. If you skip ahead, what you see is like the population of Europe had had grown a lot. And what they started to do, uh, what the church started to do is build cathedrals. Cathedrals are pretty, they're pretty similar to what you think of today when you think of a cathedral is like a giant building that was supposed to communicate the kind of seat of ecclesial power for the region it was where the bishop of the region that was like his home base um Mm -hmm. but because of this whole like institutional stability thing um there are all kinds of political things happening at the same time but the church endured and so the church was like the constant right and the church these cathedrals because they were the symbolic seat of all these kinds of uh, you know, this kind of stability, the source of stability. It was also the place where it, these things continued to happen. Like these court cases were decided um, uh, to build these cathedrals. It was a huge task. And so it, it attracted a lot of skilled artisans, uh, masons, all these things, because they were 
kind of technological marvels. And so when these cathedrals would get built, it would concentrate brain power, basically. Um, right. Like and, this place of knowledge production. Yeah. It's the same thing for like in Madison. There's, you know, there are more PhDs per capita here than there are in, I don't know, Green Bay. Mm-hmm. Because this is the center of learning and this is where those kind of conversations and relationships happen. And so the cathedral had a similar effect. But it, they also started these things called cathedral schools because the clergy, the priests that served the parishes, the smaller parishes around the cathedral, they needed to be literate to be able to read the Bible and teach on it and all that kind of thing. And so they started these cathedral schools where they learned again, they learned you know, the, the ancient languages and they learned how to translate and read and all that kind of stuff. And these cathedrals, they popped up very quickly because yeah. not only was it a place of like knowledge production, but wherever these cathedrals were, there was economic explosion as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would, they would, they were both like reflective of the possibility of economic prosperity, but then they also caused it. So they were, they were a big deal, and not just like pretty buildings to go tour. They had like a real a real function. So that happened between, you know, like 500 and 1000 AD. So these schools grew and they were kind of these, the cathedral school is this long standing thing. And the one in Paris was kind of one of the main things. Paris is kind of at the crossroads of Northern Europe. And a lot, there were some famous theologians who had written some famous books that had taught at the cathedral school there. And so it was kind of primed to become something bigger. But at around 1100, you had this like really interesting development in two different places. And this is where you can trace almost almost all of the scholars that I have seen would trace the modern university back to these two places. There was, what are those places? Yeah, there was something that was happening in Paris and then something that was happening in Bologna, Italy. In both of those places, these schools that kind of started as cathedral schools began to take more of a, like a robust shape. The, were the two different shapes that they took I believe the names for them were Stadium and Universitas. Yes. These groups, you know, these schools attracted more and more people who were eager to study. And the cathedral school kind of morphed into a thing called a a studium, like a place of study. Now, there was an interesting thing. The word that we use for university, uh, Universitas, it just means corporation (laughs) or like collective pretty relevant yeah that's yeah. sort of how they function today yeah totally and what it, it was kind of like a union so but there were two different models for how this happened so in in bologna the studium developed out of a little group of people who were studying law but the interesting thing that happened is down there the students themselves kind of took control they quote unquote like unionized and to union to to to, to create a collective they called themselves the universitas and they felt like, hey, we're the students, we're paying the teacher's salary, so we should be the ones that get to dictate the terms, which is an interesting argument. Very yeah, different that from is how our... Different than we have it today. Yeah, but that's what happened. There were these student-run, it was a student-run studium, if that makes sense. In both cases, the Paris studium and the Bologna studium were run by the Universitas, but in Bologna, the Universitas was composed of students. And there's a really interesting, I've got a little excerpt here from their demands that they placed on their teachers. I'm going to read a little bit of it. This is kind of hilarious. This is to their, their teachers were called masters. So it says, no master is allowed to begin his morning lecture before the bell at St. Peter's finished ringing for the daily mass. The master must begin his lecture immediately under penalty of $20 or whatever dollars were. Soldi. Solidi. He must not continue his lecture after the ringing of the bell for tercy. 
The students under penalty of 10 solidi must leave at the ringing of the bell. Like you have to leave immediately. So he can't keep talking. And no master should absent himself. No, no, mas no master should leave, him, leave Bologna except with the permission of the students. <laughs> In which case he will deposit the sum of 100 pounds or an article of equal value to ensure that having already been paid by the students, he would return to complete the course of lectures. So you can see there that students were, they ran, they ran the show. Run a show. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine having that type of relationship with a professor today? It seems better to me. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not if I was a teacher. So that was happening. But at the same time, the cathedral school in Paris was morphing into a studio. And But the interesting thing that happened there was the masters or the teachers, they were the ones, for some complicated reasons, that decided to make a, like a guild or a union or a, a universitas first. And so when that happened, there was this kind of collegial like official group a universitas of masters and they were the ones that set the terms for how the uh, university went and so that's kind of that's called the paris model now eventually okay. the paris model won out which is not surprising given our experience in college and anybody who's listening to this who's been to college will know that the paris model won and what you can you can what you can do is you can really draw a straight line between paris and oxford which was founded around 100 years later, and then Cambridge, which was around, I think it was like 100 years after that, so we're in, into like the 1200s, then to Harvard and like the rest of the Ivy League. And if you want to look at the state universities, the Parisian model kind of goes from Paris into Germany, and then the German kind of system eventually made its way to the United States in the late, early to mid-1800s. But the point and the is, Paris model, if I'm right, the university in Paris was the one that was more focused on theology. Yes. Yep. So in the South, it was on law, even though law tended to be canon law, which is like church law. But in the North, it was theology. So like a ton of the great medieval theologians came out of Paris. So if you're a medieval student, you really only have maybe three options of what you're going to be able to study at the university. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there was the liberal studies. arts curriculum... Well, there, there was a liberal arts at first, and then you had to kind of, that was kind of the undergraduate model. But then when you, that what we would call undergraduate, but then to, to like go and be trained for a vocation, like you said, you could do theology, law, or Le medicine. Yeah. The one that I thought was pretty interesting, Danny, because we've talked about plagues and their influence in the past, that subject of medicine emerged because of the plagues. Mm-hmm. Totally. And trying to figure out sort of answers to how to... Yeah, we're, they were kind of like, we need to organize our investigation into this and see if we can protect ourselves, you know, <laughs> from plagues. Right. And we still, I mean, the researchers at UW are investigating COVID-19 right now. So, you know, you see the connections there. One of the, one of the really interesting things that happened in Paris, though, and this is, I think, has a lot to do with the way that universities are now. And this is really also quite funny. The students then and students now tended to be like a bit rambunctious. And mm -hmm. students at the University of or what, what was becoming the University of Paris a couple times in the early 13th century, so the early 1200s, got into like drunken brawls with townspeople. And one time the students killed a tavern keeper because he like wouldn't give him any more wine. And then another time some students got mad at a tavern keeper and then they came back and kind of ruined his pub. And then people from town came in and killed a bunch of students. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Yeah, it, it was violent. I, should, I guess I shouldn't laugh about that, but that's what happened. It's just wild that the, the Pope had to get involved 
because these schools were still, you know, formally connected to the cathedral. And so in 12... it was the chancellor of the cathedral that was able to, like, grant them their titles. That's right. right? Yeah, that's right. And so the Pope got involved in 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council, and then in 1231, there was a specific kind of decree about, specifically about the University of Paris. And there's a lot that is said in there, but one of the main thing that I think is important for the direction of how universities developed was that the students, basically the whole operation of the university was explicitly not permitted to kind of go under the jurisdiction of the government in Paris. So the the prince or the whoever was in charge politically was not allowed to interfere with what was going on in the university. And if a student made trouble in town, he was to be given over to the chancellor, not to, you know, whatever political ruler was there. And so what that did so is... the students are under the governing body of the church. Yes. And what that made possible was this kind of independent spirit. They were kind of like free to do whatever they wanted to do. Although, you know, there was this process of approval for what was being taught by the chancellor and everybody that was overseeing, especially with regard to theology. But there was still, it imbued the university with this independent spirit of exploration. You could ask difficult questions and and, and trust, and this isn't just intellectually, but like the whole spirit of the place could be a little more freewheeling without threat mm-hmm. of, you know, getting put in a jail. So anyway, that, 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 I, that really set the stage for the like what we think of as these kind of centers for free inquiry, you know. So Danny, you talked about how we can trace the line from, you know, that university in Paris to Oxford to Cambridge to a school like Harvard, which mm-hmm. is one that we're all aware of today in the United States. And um, in my own research, I was reading about just the role of the church in the formation of mm-hmm. Harvard. So it was the Puritans who founded Harvard. Mm-hmm. And so can we talk a little bit about the modern yeah. universities that we know of and how the church played a role in the development of those universities? Yeah, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, most of the Ivy League, if not all of the Ivy League, they were founded as schools to train clergy. And you can, even even in that fact, you can still kind of hear the echoes of the cathedral school, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. a new place. It's an undeveloped, as far as like in Western eyes, this is like a place where we don't have much institutional structure. And the first people that we need to educate, teach to read and write, right, are clergy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The So I've got this quote from the college law um, of Harvard. And it says, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well The main end of his life and his studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17. And therefore lay Christ at the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer and secret to seek it of him. Yeah. Which is interesting to hear from a university that was in the college law of Harvard University, which when we think of Harvard today, I don't think we think of Harvard as a, like the bedrock of Harvard being right. pursuit of godly knowledge. That's true. Yeah. The thing that I think is pretty vividly portrayed in, in like places like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, etc., is that not that long ago, there was not this assumption that intellectual inquiry, in, especially into like the natural 
the created order was inherently incompatible with the Christian theological account of the world. And in fact, you know, when the University of Paris was being developed, the only reason that people felt like there was any uh, validity to the observation of creation, the, the only the only way that they thought that by observing nature, you would come to any like reliable knowledge was because of this heritage of Christian reflection on the, the created order. The fact that it is ordered, that God has given us faculties to observe it, and that we shouldn't mm-hmm. be afraid of what we find, you know, and, and to observe it is is one way of, and this, I'm talking specifically about like the natural sciences, but this is for all all inquiry. To observe it is, and to study it and to learn about it is ultimately to like draw our affections higher mm-hmm. unto God. And, and sort of like stone. plumb the depths of creation and yeah, its splendor. Totally. And it really is I feel is like in that amazing. same creation story or like the idea of exploring it, like if we look at the story of Genesis, the power of knowledge can be used for good and evil, right? Like you're saying it can be explored for the beauty and this just being able to see like the majesty of God, but it can also be the way in which we make ourselves God. For sure. I mean, that's always a temptation. And this is why Paul talks about like knowledge when it is loved for its own sake and not tempered by and characterized by love it just puffs you up and it is just it's just noise but there there doesn't like there's there's this narrative that has endured to a surprising extent that there is this necessary division between intellectual exploration and christian theology in fact i would make the case we don't have time to make it now but i would make the case that there is no coherent like philosophical foundation for the reliability of our observations of the natural world apart from a specifically christian account of what the world is how we can know it all those kind of things so danny what i'm hearing you say is that the university is deeply informed by the church and Mm -hmm. um these cathedrals and the way that they shaped our knowledge production. Mm -hmm. um, It is actually kind of informed the universities that we attend today. And it is a privilege that we have to be able to like sort of explore these different areas of study. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of, you can kind of hear echoes of God's command to Adam to like cultivate and keep the garden, like pay attention to it, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. The more we know about it, the better we ought to be able to care for it. There can be this temptation to to be like anti-intellectual in Christianity. There's also the temptation to be overly intellectual. But you can see like there are deep resources and rich resources in Christianity for motivating us to be involved in the life of our universities. And that doesn't mean that, you know, everything is good about universities now and everything, but it also doesn't mean that everything's bad. But there is like the universities are a part of our, like what the Western kind of Christian heritage and it shouldn't it's not something that we should despise and there's a lot of a lot of really beautiful things even in the schools that are like explicitly not um not christian like the university of wisconsin i mean our state schools that are designed to be so-called like neutral secular spaces they can't be that but they're they're good they're they're kind of beautiful places where god's creation is explored and people are learning and it's just there's a lot of really good stuff about it yeah i think we've covered a lot of ground in terms of history today. Yeah, it was fun. So uh, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you tune in next week for episode four of Story to Tell.